Right. We will be um, in a lot of different scripture passages today. I said last week our normal um, diet of preaching is is exegetical or going through a specific passage. And I was actually reminded as I was going through these different passages today thinking, boy, I just wish we could just sit in this passage, that that is the best way for us to, to know God's word. But I do think it's good for us to step back and do this as well. Um, so if you want to land somewhere at the beginning, you can go back to First Timothy 4. We're going to launch off from there, and then I'll be reading a, a number of other scriptures, a good number. Um, and you can turn to those as you would like to. But First Timothy 4 might be a good place to, as we come back up to speed um, in this series. My hope this morning is that we would all walk away a little bit more like, well, like Jesus, but also like Eric Little. Uh, Eric Little was an Olympic runner who later became a missionary and actually a martyr in China. And his life is depicted in the movie Chariots of Fire. Have you seen, who's seen Chariots of Fire? Okay, you need to see Chariots of Fire. Uh, it won Best Picture, I believe, and the song is just iconic. You would know the song. I won't sing it for you. Um, but there's a scene in Chariots of Fire where Eric Little is speaking with his, uh, with his sister, and his sister does not like the idea of him running in the Olympics. She knows that his ultimate goal is to be a missionary in China, and she doesn't like this whole running in the Olympics thing. It doesn't seem right to her. And I love Little's response in the movie, which I think ca- captures his personality as well. He, he says to her in that conversation, he says, I believe God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast, is what he says. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Eric Little was fast. Uh, they depict him in the movie. He just ran like a wild man. He had no really great form, but he just ran like a, a, a man with the spirit of God in him almost. And he won an Olympic gold medal. Uh, he won it not in the the um, the event that he had trained for because it was being run on a Sunday. And he refused to run on Sunday. And so he entered into a different event and still won the gold medal in that event. And I believe that uh, just as he did, that as uh, he could run in a way that brought glory to God and that was a rejoicing in God, and he could become a missionary and later a martyr in a way that, that glorified God and a way that he was able to rejoice in God, that God was both glorified and pleased in both of those acts of faith. That's sort of the tension that we've been talking about in this three-week series that we're kind of we're calling the stuff of earth and the glory of God. It, it's less of a three-week series and more like a sermon split over three weeks, just because we can't cover it all in in one um, week, or we'd be here all day long. Um, but last week we sort of raised this tension that we that we face between the fact that we exist in physical bodies in a physical world filled with things that we that we do enjoy. And also the perception that to be truly spiritual, we should be striving to escape from the world. So we saw in our text, as Jordan even pointed out, that there were those in the early church who said that we need to rid ourselves from some of these physical things. So we, we shouldn't, they, they forbid, they, they forbade marriage and eating certain foods. And by forbidding those things, they said you will be more devoted to Christ if you don't do these things, if you don't enjoy these things. 
So we ask, is there a divide between the, the sacred and the secular? Or can I enjoy all that God has made for his glory? Should I go to the one extreme, which would be asceticism or monasticism, become a monk, become a recluse, and, and, and deny all, my, all the worldly pleasures for the sake of following Christ? That's what it means to be really holy. Or do I go to the other extreme of, of some sort of extreme or basic hedonism that, that just I'm going to seek out all the joy that I can without any reference for who God is? And verse, verses 4 and 5 of 1 Timothy 4 were so helpful to us. They say, Everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving, for it's made holy by the word of God and prayer. So, Paul, it's such a huge statement. All that God has made is good, and we should reject none of it. I asked the question of of a couple small groups this week, is there anything that God has created and then told us explicitly, outright, you, you cannot enjoy that in any way. Is there anything in his creation that he says it's an outright no to? The only thing that we could come up with was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that he created that and then said no. But as far as the created order that we see now, is there anything that he's given an outright no to? I, I don't think that, that there is. And so therefore, Paul can make this huge statement, nothing is to be rejected, everything is to be enjoyed. And the key in 1 Timothy 4 that we saw is what? That it's received with thanksgiving and that it's sanctified by the word. So the sanctified by the word, we says that it's pronounced good um, in the context, for, in the, when it's enjoyed in the context that God has created it. And if we can receive it uh, as with thanksgiving, then we can enjoy it to the glory of God. So the thanksgiving, it honors God, right? So I receive a gift and I say, this is from you, God. It's given for my joy. Therefore, it is it is good. So that's the pronouncement that God makes on everything. He, and he even says that when he makes it, doesn't he? What's he say after everything that he makes? It is good. I was listening to Tim Keller this week, and he talked about the song of creation. And he said that that pronouncement that God makes of saying this is good is him rejoicing over his creation. And so as those created in his image, he allows us to come in to take the creation that he's given to enjoy it, and then to say, as he did, it is good. And when we say that, it's a rejoice. And isn't that what you say when you enjoy one of God's good gifts? We eat, we'll eat a meal tonight, and we'll say, this is good. We'll enjoy time with family and friends this coming week, and we'll say, this is, this is good. Uh, you maybe go on vacation, take a walk on the beach, and you say, this is good. And when we say that, we are imaging God, and we are doing what he did when he created all things, which is enjoying all that he has made. So last week was sort of this unreserved call to enjoyment. And I don't want to take away from that call this week, but it's not as easy as we would like it to be because there are cautions and also sort of tensions within Scripture. That's what I want to think about, cautions and, and tensions within Scripture. I worked at a church camp when I was in high school. I worked there for five years. Not, I wasn't in high school for five years. <laughs> I, one year when I was in college, I worked there. Um, and we had four-wheelers on the property. And there was a, this small dirt oval that the campers were allowed to ride the, the, the four-wheelers in. And each four-wheeler had a governor. A governor is a, a device that, that controls the speed. It says this is as fast as this four-wheeler is allowed to go. Well, one summer, 
all the campers had gone, and Akron University, uh, their football team, was using our camp to get ready for their upcoming season, and there was a limited amount of staff that they had there, and so it was me and, you know, maybe four or five other guys, and we were on doing maintenance stuff, cleaning bathrooms and things like that, and uh, the the campers weren't there, and the university students were not using the four-wheelers, and so we decided to, and so we would get them out, and before we would take the four-wheelers out, we would turn up or turn off, however you say it, the governor. Uh, let this thing go as fast as we can possibly make it go. And we didn't stay on the oval track either. We we went everywhere. There was a big field we we went in, and we went into the woods, and we, we went wherever we wanted. And for the most part, it was totally awesome, except for a few times, you know, when people fell off or, you know, flipped them or things like that. That was not the good part. It was far from wise at points. And so last week, it's it's kind of like we took the governor off the engine, and we pulled it off the track and we said, everything's good. Nothing is to be rejected. But today we're going to try to talk a little bit about maybe putting the governor back on and seeing where are we supposed to drive these things. But it's not as simple as me saying, okay, everybody in the room, set your governor to 20 miles per hour. It just it doesn't work that way. That's not the way scripture tells us. Rather, we have to say, here's the things we need to consider, the cautions and the, and the words of wisdom from Scripture that are given to us as Christians. But by God's grace, as we look at his word and through the leading of the Spirit, we have to figure out where do we set our governor in each and every area of our lives. There's clear prohibitions in Scripture, but beyond that, I can't give you rules and lists. I could but I would be a poor pastor to do that because that's not what Scripture does. It doesn't give us rules and lists. It helps us to see here's the way where you're not supposed to go. And within this freedom, let's use wisdom and the leading of the Spirit to decide what we're supposed to do with all of these things. And so one of the we're hope, let's let's we're going to think about cautions and tensions. Okay, so I've got four. Um, you can call it five. One would be from last week, which is the call to enjoyment. That is one of the things that we should remember is this call to enjoyment. It keeps us from debilitating guilt over enjoying the good things that God has created. But there are these cautions. And so the first one I want to think about is the, the threat of sin and idolatry. The, the threat of sin and idolatry. If everything created by God is good, then one way to think about Sin would be a distortion of God's good gifts. So all of these God, these good gifts can be distorted. So we said physical intimacy is good within marriage, but taken out of marriage, it's distorted and it's, and it's wrong. Food is good, but, but gluttony is wrong. I don't think scripture outright forbids alcohol. In fact, it rejoices in it all over the place, but drunkenness is clearly a sin in scripture. So the threat of sin is that we would enjoy God's good gifts outside of the fences that, that he has given. So that, that would be outright sin. These are areas where there is, it's not gray at all, but it would show that there's a way that God has given a good gift, enjoyed outside of those bounds, it becomes sin. But the more subtle and slippery issue is idolatry. Idolatry is exalting the gift above the giver. So gluttony is clearly wrong. But there's also the threat of, of worshiping food, even when you're eating right portions, right? Um, sexual intimacy in marriage is not wrong, but if that's where you find your ultimate joy, then it's become an idol. Um, alcohol is not wrong, but 
there's so many ways that it can be abused. It can be if you if alcohol is something that you turn to to find peace or to find rest, then it becomes an idol. We're encouraged to enjoy God's creation, the the sun and the moon and the trees and everything else that God has made, but we're not supposed to worship them. This is what Paul says is our natural bent because of sin. We see the wonders of creation and being physical beings, we 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 see it and it's supposed to remind us of the one that made it all, but we instead worship the creature rather than the creator. And that's that's the play, that's what we face as people in these physical bodies. So we said last week that we can eat, we can drink, we can do everything to the glory of God. So sin is to do something not for the glory of God. And it may include not glorifying God, but in fact glorifying the gift that he has given. Turning that into the idol that we worship instead of him. So food, let's take food for example. There are those, Philippians 3.19, whose God is their belly or their stomach. They worship their stomach. I was thinking about people in Scripture that do this. And Isaac, I think, is one. One of the patriarchs, Isaac. You remember that God blessed Isaac with, with two sons, Jacob and Esau, these, these twins. Esau was the elder and Jacob was the younger. And God was very clear at their birth that the elder will serve the younger. The blessing goes, uh, I'm always, the, the blessing goes to Jacob. But what does Esau do? I mean, what, what does Isaac do? When it comes time to bless his sons, he chooses to bless Esau. God was very clear who he was supposed to bless. Isaac says, I'm going to bless Esau. And part of it seems to be tied to the fact that Esau was, was a man who could go out and kill wild game and make food that Isaac loved. I think that's tied to why he loved Esau more. I think Esau picked up on this, and I think Esau loved his stomach more than God's blessings. Remember, what does he do? He sells his birthright. For a bowl of soup. He learned that probably from his father because his father is willing to disobey God for a good meal. The Israelites struggled with worshiping their stomachs a lot. They were always complaining um, about their desire for food, grumbling. God gave them manna every day, but what did they want? They want some meat. Samson. Samson breaks his Nazarite vow. Why? By taking some honey out of the carcass of a lion. We could go on and on. That's just the tip of the iceberg, and that's just food. All of God's gifts, everything good can become an idol, things that we worship rather than God. And again, idolatry is tricky. It's it's in our hearts, and it's hard to identify it sometimes. But I think one way to to think about it is what are we what are we investing ourselves in? How do I spend my my money? How do I spend my time? How do I spend my my energy? We find ourselves enslaved to certain things. They can be good, but they can become idols. Other helpful questions might be, am I, am I neglecting necessary things to enjoy this? Computer with the internet can be a great thing. But if I neglect my schoolwork or my responsibilities at home to watch things on YouTube, it's become an idol. Am I mentally preoccupied with something or someone in an unhealthy way? Am I, am I thinking about this thing or this person all the time? When, when, my, when I have those moments where I'm just sitting back and my mind sort of clears, what comes to my mind? It could be that that's something I'm worshiping rather than God. 
Do I turn to some gift from God rather than God when things are difficult? Something that becomes a refuge for me, a place that I'm going to turn to find comfort. So stress comes, and we can turn to God, we can turn to His Word, and even we said last week, we can go and enjoy Him in His creation. But we can also turn to other things that become idols. People get stressed and they eat ice cream. Other people drink alcohol when they get stressed. Others watch TV because I just need to veg out a little bit. None of these things, for the most part, are, are inherently wrong. Most of, They are gifts. But when they become idols, it's, it's when we worship them, when we turn to them as a refuge instead of God. And then they become sinful. An idol is simply, simply something we love more than God, isn't it? God's gifts are to drive us to love Him, or to love Him, not just the gift. That's why... First John, it doesn't tell us to, to leave the world or to not deny God's gifts, but what does it say in First John 2, 15 and 17? Don't love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. What are we worshiping? What are we... What are we investing our time and our energy in? It's, it's a slippery thing, but we can take these good gifts from God and we can exalt the gift above the giver and worship the gift, worship create, created thing rather than the creator. And that's when it becomes sin. That's when it becomes idolatry. We could say a lot more about idolatry, but let's sort of segue into another caution or tension uh, so the first is the threat of sin and idolatry. The second would be the necessity of self-denial. The necessity of self-denial. We're speaking as Christians. There's a, there's a call to self-denial as a Christian. We just wrapped up Luke. And we talked about this great call to discipleship within Luke. And in doing so, we emphasize all of the radical calls to discipleship in Luke. Things like, let the dead bury the dead. You come and follow me. Don't look back once you put your hand to the plow. Sell everything that you have. Give it to the poor and, and follow me. Those are strong statements. And this self-denial is supposed to be done out of love for God. This is what we see throughout Scripture, that love for God will lead us to count everything else as loss for the sake of following Christ, as Paul says. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you'll go as far as to cut off your hand or gouge out your eyes so that you can follow me and not sin against me. 1 Corinthians 7.5 says that, that even married couples, they can abstain from sexual intimacy for a while to focus on prayer. That's a good gift that Paul says you can actually abstain from so that, deny yourself that joy so that you can follow me more. But then he also recognizes the goodness of it. Just listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians 7.5. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement, this is speaking of husband and wife, for a limited time that you may devote yourself to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. There's a balance there. Good gifts can be denied so that we can seek after God, but should not be outright forbidden. 1 Corinthians 7 is a really interesting passage. Just sort of side note here. Speaking about marriage, uh, where Paul's saying it's, you know, some people shouldn't get married, but if you're going to get married, you should keep it within these certain bounds. Really interesting to think about in light of these things, but we don't have time. You'll, you'll, as we go through the sermon, you'll think, why didn't you just do a series on 1 Corinthians? That would have been a lot easier. 
Um, but the, the Pharisees then, so we're thinking about self-denial, they get upset at Jesus and his disciples because they don't fast. But Jesus says, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But he says the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Well, we're in that day. There's joy in the presence of the bridegroom. And we, in a sense, know that now, and we can rejoice in the good things that God has given. But we are also those who should fast, because Jesus is not with us. So we love God and his good gifts, but we miss Christ, and we, and we struggle with sin. So we don't always fast. We don't always deny ourselves of food. In fact, the majority of our lives is probably not fasting. But there is a time and a place for self-denial because of love for God. So our love for God, our desire to be devoted to Him, will cause us to deny ourselves certain things. But it's not just love for God. Love for others will cause us to deny certain good gifts that God has given us. Our love for others. We see in places like Isaiah 1 that God, in fact, despises the good feasts of Israel because in feasting, they are neglecting the poor. Amos 5, 21-24, listen to these words. God speaks and says, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. These feasts are good. Rejoicing is good. Songs of rejoicing in God are good. But without any reference to others, without love for others, and denying the, the, the homeless and denying the poor, we, we take God's good gifts and we turn them into something wrong. In the New Testament, the Corinthians, they were, they were feasting, they were celebrating the Lord's Supper, but they were doing it in such a way that they excluded other people. And this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? <laughs> Exclamation point. Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. They wanted to rejoice in the Lord's Supper, but it caused them, in, in all of their rejoicing, to in fact exclude people. Paul talks about, in 1 Corinthians, eating meat offered to idols. And Paul says about meat offered to idols, it's good. It's a good thing that can be enjoyed to the glory of God. It's fine, because it doesn't mean anything. It can be received with thanksgiving. But he also recognized that there were some who had trouble with this idea of eating something that had been offered to an idol. So he concludes a, a long discussion that continues on in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 8. He says, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So Paul, in reference of the church of God, says, you know what? I have freedom to eat this meat, but if it's causing issue for my brother, and I love my brother, I love my sister more than I love this meat, and I can deny myself of that out of love for my brother and my sister. We as Christians are free to enjoy all things, but we are also free to love God and to love others by denying ourselves. Romans 14 talks about a similar issue. 
you can turn to Romans 14. This is a good one to look at. Romans 14, and I want to read in, in verse 13. When I looked at this text, this is when I came to Just studying through passages is the best way because there's so much in this. Um, but Romans 14, beginning in verse 13, Paul writes, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know, and I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Let me give you three thoughts from this. One would be, don't pass judgment on others. He says, we're not supposed to look at what other people are doing. Now, there's a time and a place where we need to step in if something is clearly sin. But he says, don't pass we need to stop passing judgment on other people as to what they, what their conscience says is, is right. Now, of course, there's times to step in. But as a general, let's, we do this so well. We don't pass judgment on one another. There is a conviction, a conviction that the Holy Spirit brings to each of us outside of the clear prohibitions in Scripture. Next, he says he talks about this idea of conscience that we should never deny, or we should never violate our conscience. He says, "I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. Something can be a good gift given by God, but me." Enjoying it, it bothers my conscience. So Sabbath is fulfilled in Christ. And there's a sense in which, you know, we have different views of Sabbath. I can't mow my grass on the Sabbath. I'm not going to say that you can't mow your grass on the Sabbath, but for some reason that violates my conscience, and I can't do it. Now, you might have full freedom to do that in Christ, but I can't do it. So there's, there's things like that. Um, that, that we should never violate our conscience, and it could be anything and everything. And But the final thing there is that we should seek peace with others. Verse 18, so let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Here's, here's the idea. When we think about um, when, we, when we think about this idea of, of um, the, 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 the self-denial for the love of others, is that we can't enjoy God's good gifts in a vacuum. We are part of a community of believers. And so we have to think with respect to others. Pure hedonism just says, I'll do whatever I want without any respect for anyone else, because if it feels good, I'm going to do it. If it brings me joy, then I'm going to do it. But as Christians, we are a family. We are a body. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And so my enjoyment of things can hurt someone else, could cause someone else to sin. And I need to think about that when I'm stepping into certain situations. So we, we can deny ourselves things out of love for God and out of love for others. So here's the tensions we said, the, the threat of sin and idolatry, the, the, the necessity of, of, of self-denial. Um, but I, even thinking about that, Paul, Paul's great goal was always the, the furtherance of the gospel, wasn't it? 
He was willing to suffer anything or deny himself anything if it meant that someone could grow to know Christ more. In 1 Corinthians 9, he summarizes this attitude. He says, beginning in verse 19, For though I am free from all of them, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew, in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessing. The love that we have for others extends also to others who are outside of Christ, that they would know the gospel. And there may be things, good joys that I will deny so that others can know Christ. We see this most clearly, probably more extreme, in missionaries. And those who, who leave home, who leave comfort, and go to a place where they deny themselves a good thing. Why? For the love of others and for the spread of the gospel. But it's not just missionaries that need to do that. There are ways in our lives where we can deny ourselves good pleasures that God has given us in a way that it means that we can further the gospel. Whether it's spending less on something so that I have more to give. Or not using all my time just to make me happy, but using my time also to help others to grow in the gospel and to know who Christ is. So love for others is within the body of Christ, but it extends outside of that, and there's a radical call that says we deny ourselves certain joys and certain pleasures that maybe we want so that others might know who God is. Sometimes we can willfully say no to things, but sometimes we have good things taken from us. And so let's add this to our list of tensions and cautions, number three, the reality of present suffering. The reality of present suffering. We can talk about God's good gifts in this world. But we also know that we live in an extremely broken world. There are days when we have trouble rejoicing. Dark days when you know, sin and death hang over us like a shadow. You know, God is with us in the valley of the shadow of death. He's with us in the dark night of the soul. But joy often has to wait until we're out of the valley. Or until the sun rises in the morning. Sometimes it's hard to rejoice because life is hard. And we don't want to be some sort of Pollyanna that just sort of tries to put a positive spin on everything. And we don't want to deny the fact that life is hard because life is hard. And there's times where it's really hard to rejoice. It's really hard to see what God is doing. I thought about Psalm 137. Psalm 137 is, is written when the Israelites were in exile in Babylon. And and when and this, this psalm was written probably while they were in Babylon. The first four verses of Psalm 137 say this, By the waters of Babylon there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. We remembered our, our home. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, our, our musical instrument. For there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? There was pain, and, and their, be, their captors are saying, Hey, sing us a song. Be, 
be joyful. And they said, how am I supposed to sing? I've been ripped from my homeland. Everything that I love is gone from me. Am I supposed to rejoice in this? God does call us to rejoice in pain, but there's sometimes where that's just next to impossible. The things are hard. And so as we think about enjoying God's good gifts, let's remember there's times where that's just not possible. And, and not just think about the fact that life is hard for us, but the fact that life is hard for others influences how we enjoy good things. We're called to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. This idea that we don't enjoy things in a vacuum, that we're tied to one another, means that, that some of the sometimes when people are going through difficult things, it means it's hard for me to rejoice because I know my brother or my sister is having a, a hard time with something. We're tied to others, and we, we have a knowledge of their suffering. We know people who are facing physical pain, and sometimes it's hard for us to enjoy things. We have a friend who has maybe lost someone that they love, and it's hard, we feel that pain with them. Or even outside of the, the, the body of Christ, we know that there are people in our city who are, who are homeless, who are helpless, who have no food when we sit down to eat our food. Does that mean I should never eat? No, but it will, it will help me think about the food that I do have. And it will help me think about how can I reach out and help those that are in need. As I was thinking about that, I thought about a scene from Little Women, which I have seen multiple times because I have two sisters and four daughters. Uh, I've seen pieces of it. I think I've seen two different versions of it. Uh, I've watched this movie. And in that, that movie, near the beginning, there's this, this scene where it's the March family. Is that right, Andrew? So the March family, they're getting ready. It's Christmas morning, and they have this beautiful Christmas feast that they're going to enjoy. And their mother comes back. I don't remember who she was with, but with a, a family that just really had nothing. And she's telling them about this. And these four sisters, they start to feel very guilty. <laughs> now, could they enjoy that meal to the glory of God? Sure. But there's, there's this conviction that sort of comes that says, here we are with all of these good things and these people that are suffering. And you watch them, I think it's the youngest one, Amy, she's kind of a little rough sometimes, who, who struggles with the idea of it. But they pack up their whole meal and they take it to this family and they go and they eat the, the, the meal with this family. And so the, in light of the suffering of others, it changed how they were able to enjoy the good things that they had. I, I thought about that in relation to our Thanksgiving meal tonight. You know, we can have a Thanksgiving meal tonight and just make sure that no one else knew about it. Let's hold up in here. Grace Fellowship Church will enjoy some good food together. And we could do it in a way that would be great and honoring to God. But isn't it true that as Christians we grow in joy, we know more joy when we reach out? And I'll tell you what, this hit me at 9-11 last night when I'm trying to bring all these things together. I looked at the clock because it was like this epiphany moment. I know this, but when tying all together it just came so clearly, it's this. And I, this is the big idea. I didn't give you a big idea at the beginning because this is it. God is always working to increase our joy in Him through His mighty works. God is always working to increase our joy in Him through His mighty works. And the tensions and the cautions don't decrease our joy. They increase our joy. The world can enjoy the gifts of God but not like the children of God can through faith in Christ and walking in His ways in the midst of tensions 
and cautious. So one of our tensions is the threat of sin and idolatry. Does idolatry and sin bring joy? No. Maybe temporarily. But we're created to worship God, and our greatest joy is not found in worshiping his gifts, but in worshiping him. So when God tells us, don't worship the things I've created, worship me instead, he's saying, you'll find more joy in these things if you can let them be a window that points you to me. That's where more joy is is found. Okay, the self-denial bring joy. We could say no, but actually, yes. Jesus says that in order for us to find our lives, what do we have to do? We've got to lose them first. Those who lose their lives are the ones that find them. And when we lose our lives for the spread of the gospel, for the good of others, for the glory of God, for the joy of all people, then, then we will find our greatest joy. We lose them for the good of others, and then we together can rejoice with others. You know, you think about missionaries leaving everything, and we, we feel so bad for them. Oh, I feel so bad that they went to this terrible place. But they're going for joy. I think sometimes there's this mentality where people come back from, like, a mission trip, and they say, oh, we don't realize how, how good we all have it here. But in fact, some of these things are dragging us down and helping us not see the goodness of God in, in small things. So self-denial can bring joy. Suffering is something that God uses to bring joy. And in fact, the suffering in this world, but the suffering in this world that we face, in the midst of that, we're supposed to remember the reality of the coming kingdom. That's the fourth tension that I want to bring in here, the reality of the coming kingdom. Our enjoyment, this is the last thing we'll say, our enjoyment of the here and now is done in the context of the fact that there is a world that is to come. C.S. Lewis spoke of this world, he called it the shadow lands. Everything is shadow here. But the, the reality is yet to come. And the danger for us as we think about the stuff of earth is that we can think that this is all that there is. That's why people find joy in this, because they are looking for their ultimate joy in this, because they think that this is all that there is. That's what happens to the, the gospel seed. Remember the parable of the sower? It falls amongst the thorns, and it gets choked out by what? The cares and the riches and the pleasures of this world. It gets choked out by those things. That's what happened to Demas. Demas walked with Paul. He was a fellow worker with Paul. And 2 Timothy 4.10 says, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted. Demas fell in love with the world so much that he forsook the gospel. He thought this was all there was. Remember when we talked about those who, whose stomach is their God? Listen to the context. Philippians 3, beginning in verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, many of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. But, Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we, wait, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. We think that this is where we ultimately belong, then we will try to find our greatest joy 
here, but if we realize that we are citizens of another kingdom, we will realize these things are good, but they're shadows. And there's something greater that is to come. So what Jordan read from 1 Timothy 6, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. This is not truly life. There's something else that is truly life. Do you know that which is truly life? you know what true life is? I mean, there are pleasures here and now, but there's a sense in which none of the stuff of earth can satisfy us. C.S. Lewis again, he says this, If we find ourselves with the desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. If we find ourselves with the desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. You and I, all of us, were made for another world. And we've made a mess of this world. We've turned all of God's good gifts into idols. We've rebelled against them. We've sought to be king ourselves. And our sin and our seeking of joy outside of God brings nothing but death into our lives. We are judged by God as rebels and idol worshippers. That's who we are apart from grace. So we are denied the joy that we were created for. But in the greatest act of grace and mercy, Jesus Christ comes. God sends his son to pay the penalty for our idolatry and for our idol worshiping and then rises again to give us new life and the hope of the world that is to come, the world that we were ultimately created for. And he calls us to turn from sin and to turn to Christ, to repent. And he invites us to come and to find our ultimate joy in him. To be his sons and daughters. To be children of the people. I'd encourage you, if you're looking for satisfaction purely in the stuff of this earth, it will never happen. You're not created just to find joy here. You will always be dissatisfied. If you come to Christ, if you repent, turn to Him. He will forgive that idol worship, and He'll show you how to worship Him truly in joy. Now, I said I was going to put the governor on this morning, right? Slow us down which to a high school kid sitting on a four-wheeler sounds like totally lame, you know. But the governor and, and the boundaries, as we think about the good gifts that God has given us, they don't hamper our joy, do they? They, they actually maximize it and increase our joy. So if all we had was this plain call to enjoyment without any of these tensions and, and cautions, then, then we could never find our, our greatest joy in the way that God has created us to. So the call to enjoyment in and of itself is a governor. It keeps us from finding the true joy that we were created for. So in fact, as we walk through life as Christians, and as we understand these tensions, as we walk in the Spirit, God is slowly taking the governor off of our joy. Not, not saying you can do whatever you want, but rather he's saying, I am wanting to give you the greatest joy possible. And it's found through enjoying these things in the midst of all of these Tensions and cautions. God is always working to increase our joy in Him through His mighty works.
I think what we've done, what I've tried to do here, is it's like a jigsaw puzzle. We've dumped all the pieces out, and and slowly we're turning them face up. That's the first thing you got to do, right? Where's let's let's get our pieces laid out. Next thing you do is is create the border. Okay, that's the first thing you do. I keep trying to teach my kids this; they can't distinguish the border pieces. So here's the border. And I think these tensions and cautions, that's, that's the border. We've kind of got five. So we've got the call to enjoyment, um, the threat of, of, of sin and idolatry, the reality of, of self-denial, um, the, uh, I can't even remember them all now, the reality of the, of the coming kingdom and, and the reality of, of present suffering. So that sort of frames how we're going to enjoy all these things. And next week I want to try to help us see what's the, What's the picture? The picture won't be the same for everyone, but I think the picture is joyful contentment in what God is doing. That's what, how we live in relation to this world. Within those borders, we find a place of joy-filled contentment. But for now, as you step into this week of Thanksgiving, let's step into it, again, ready to enjoy all things with Thanksgiving. Let's do it, let's do it in a way that we don't worship the meal that we're eating, we even might find a way to deny certain things for the glory of God or for the good of others. We recognize that there are people that Thanksgiving is hard for them because maybe they've lost a family member. We realize that, that there's suffering in the world that people that don't even have food to eat around this one. And we, we enjoy it in the context of that. And then also we're not putting our ultimate hope in a meal or in our family and all these other things. We're recognizing that there is a world to come. And that while these things are good and can be enjoyed to the glory of God, they point to, they, they, they are shadows, they are the shadow land, they point to a world that is to come, and ultimately to God, who is the greatest joy and the treasure of our hearts. Let's live in the tensions. I'm not trying to hamper your joy. God is not trying to hamper our joy. He's trying to maximize it, increase it, so that we can glorify Him with all our lives. Let's take a moment of silence and think on these things and then I'll pray for us. God, you are good and all that you have made is good. And your word is good. And all of these commands and cautions are for our good. Thank you. Thank you for not letting us just run wild, but for teaching us how to worship you, teaching us how to love others, how to love you, reminding us of the world that is to come. But it's, it's hard to do this, and yet we thank you. Thank you, God. Help us to... Give us wisdom, Lord, by your Spirit, guide us. Continue to spark conversations among us that we would not only know that you are working for our joy, but we would work for the joy of one another. And we would work together to help each of us find our greatest joy in you. And I even pray for tonight. What a wonderful opportunity to give. But it's not in hoarding and keeping things to ourselves that we will be truly satisfied. But it's more blessed to give than to receive. Thank you for that beautiful truth. Lord, be with us. 
this week, make us truly thankful. Pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.